Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within and like the phoenix enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest is Liz Bailey, a solicitor living in London. Hear her frank discussion about the death of her father to suicide. This cataclysmic event sets her off on a quest for answers, ultimately finding the courage to step outside the shadow of this tragedy, freeing her to live life on her own terms. Please welcome Liz Bailey. Welcome, Liz, to Phoenix Tales. I start the conversation off by asking one question, and the question is, has there been an event in your life, personal or professional, that was challenging and had that event perhaps redirect or reshape the course of your life? The death of my dad in 1994, when I was 27, I would say changed the direction of my life quite significantly. Would you mind sharing how he passed, if you don't? Yeah. He killed himself at my parents' home when my parents' marriage was breaking up. So instead of, as I always say, getting divorced like a normal person, he decided to take his own life in a very... I think it's always hurtful when people commit suicide, but he did it in a very hurtful way that almost felt like he was murdering himself and trying to leave the bloody knife in my mother's hand, if that makes sense. Do you know if he had suffered from depression or if he had depression most of his life? Well, that was an interesting thing about it. For various reasons, I had to phone most of his friends. My dad was born in Australia right. and had studied in the US all over the place and had worked in lots of different places. So he had friends all over the world and I did not want them to find out about the suicide by receiving a letter in the post. So I rang everybody whose number I could find in my dad's address book. And I did discover as a sort of something that I hadn't been aware of, which was that he had suffered from episodes of very severe depression when he was at university, when he was a younger man. I had only been aware of one of them when his sister killed herself when I was, I think, seven. And I had never seen one of these episodes of kind of very black depression where he would kind of go into a darkened room and lock himself away for days at a time. But as I say, I discovered from all of his friends that this had been a not uncommon occurrence when he was a much younger man. Do you know if he ever sort of confronted the depression head on? I mean, this was years ago when I know that psychopharmaceuticals were not as prevalent or looked upon as a norm of life. So would you have any sense whether or not he had taken medication to treat his depression? Well, he didn't believe that he was a depressive because he believed that he didn't have emotions. He thought emotions were for other people and that he was a pure intellect without emotions. That said, my parents did once go and have some counseling 
which I'm not really sure what spurred them to go and have counseling, but they were invited to go and have some counseling by one of the family doctors. And after one session of talking to these two counselors, my dad said to them, where is my counsel? And they said, well, that's not how this works. And he said, well, I'm done here and walked out that there wasn't such broad availability of psychopharmaceuticals. But also, I don't think he was open to the idea of addressing or dealing with his depression, whether that would have been through something like therapy or counseling or taking medication. So can we go back to when he committed suicide? You said you were 27. Yeah. And I can just imagine that the first couple of years of that, you were busy trying to unpack that for yourself. Did you have moments of just outright anger? I know that anger is a real byproduct of family members who are left when somebody has committed suicide. To be fair, I think anger is actually a normal part of grieving, even when someone doesn't commit suicide, because you're angry with someone for leaving you behind. I think it's much more pronounced in a suicide because someone is leaving you behind as you see it voluntarily. And yes, I was angry. I was angry with him from the moment that I discovered that that was what had happened. I remember coming home from work. My mother had called me and said, you have to come home from work because I think your father is dead. And when the policeman opened the door and I thought, oh my God, you don't have a policeman here for no reason. I said, did he kill himself? And the policeman said, yes. And I immediately was like, had this kind of red rage because I felt it was such a selfish thing for him to do to put the rest of us through that. So I can actually remember one of my mother's friends saying to me at the time, you know, one day you may be very angry about this. And I was like, oh, there's no one day about it. I'm absolutely <laughs> curious about it, like right now. <laughs> right now. So it is complicated with a suicide. I think grief is always complicated and loss is always complicated. But with a suicide, you have such a high degree of anger that it actually makes it in a way more difficult to cope with your loss and to feel the sadness because sometimes the anger is just so overwhelming and it takes up all that space where you would normally be feeling sadness. But I do also remember feeling huge sadness that I thought the idea of somebody being in a place where they felt that hopeless, that doing what he did seemed like a rational thing to do. That's a place of such dark hopelessness that I hope no one you love ever goes to that place ever again. Obviously, many years have passed since this has happened. Has your perspective shifted? Meaning now that you kind of started to unpack this idea that he suffered from really serious bouts of depression. Has it changed your perspective in some way about a little bit of forgiveness of the fact that he did this? Yeah, I think I have, to the extent that I feel like I need to forgive him, I think I have forgiven him. It's a thing that someone does when they're not in their sorry to be trite, but you're not in your right mind when you commit suicide. For someone to think the only solution to this problem is actually to take my own life and not be in this world anymore and not have the love and support of all the people who care about me, that's someone who's not a well person. And I have to sort of forgive him on the basis that I think if he had been the sort of person who was able to reach out for help and support, he wouldn't have been in those circumstances. So it's almost like this was a a natural corollary of the type of personality that he had and potentially the family he grew up in where 
it seems like from the little that I know about it, it was unacceptable to have bad or unhappy feelings. You could only have good or happy feelings and therefore bad or unhappy feelings were simply unbearable. I'd have moved beyond the anger. My anger for him now is only on an intellectual level. And my feeling about the whole thing is more just sadness. Sadness that he took himself out of this life when he still had so much more life to live. And do you miss him? I'm sure you do, but... I do miss him. It's an interesting question because the one thing that sounds very mean to say about my dad is that my dad was an extremely eccentric person. (laughs) As mentioned, I have to admit, it made him very difficult to live with. And in many ways, life has been simpler and easier for me and also for my mother since he's been gone. And as I say, that sounds like a really mean and horrible thing to say, but it is quite true. So I do miss him. And I still have moments where I see particularly some kind of you know comedy that he would have been interested in or an actor or a comic who he was or a musician who he was particularly fond of. And I sort of think, oh, you know, he would love to hear about this. And of course, I can't tell him I can't share that thing or that experience with him. I don't miss him on a sort of every single day of my life basis. I know many people who suffer a loss, you know, a great loss of someone very close to them. I think about them all day, every day for the rest of their lives. I don't do that with my dad. I get quite cross with my mother and my brother who I don't even know how many years on we are from the whole event and they're still acting like it happened yesterday. Sometimes I get annoyed with them. Well, that brings me to my next question. How did this sort of catastrophic experience and event in your family shift your relationship with your mother? It was tricky because I think my mother, out of all of us, felt terribly, terribly guilty. I think everybody feels a little bit guilty when someone commits suicide because you look back and you think, should I have noticed, you know, should this thing that was totally normal for someone to be doing because they were anticipating getting divorced. Should I have known that that was actually preparation for a suicide and not a divorce? And it's very easy to second guess yourself. But my mother of all of us was actually blamed over openly by my dad in this letter that he sent out Mm -hmm. to all his friends. So I think she suffered a lot of guilt, but I think it also really brought into stark contrast the fact that I am a person who, when I have a feeling, I need to feel it. And my mom and my brother were very much not wanting to feel the grief. So they kind of, in a way, let me do all the grieving. And that did in many ways drive a wedge between us because I felt very angry with them that they weren't grieving. And they seemed to feel sort of a bit bemused by the degree of grief that I was feeling. It did change our relationship. We did actually go and have some family counseling, which Mm -hmm. was strangely helpful. We only had one or two sessions, but the woman said something interesting to me, which was, why don't you write your dad a letter, notwithstanding that he won't get it. The fact is that what's important is for you to express to him the feelings that you have. And that actually was helpful. But I do remember my mom and my brother sitting in this family counseling, sort of staring at me like I was an unexploded nuclear bomb. And and (laughs) I was sitting kind of on the other side of the room looking at them like, why aren't you feeling any pain or sadness? You know, people are just very different, aren't they? I think the way different people process grief or in their case, maybe don't process grief or don't process it 
straight away or don't process it in the same way that I do, it is difficult because it is very hard when you are someone who experiences grief very deeply immediately. It's hard to watch the people around you not doing that. And I remember when we took my dad's ashes to Regent's Park, we had to get special permission from the region. Oh, I didn't know scattered him in Regent's Park. That's one of my favorite parks. <laughs> well, we decided to seek special permission from the regents to sprinkle his ashes in the duck pond at Regent's Park. Which was oh, yes, the famous duck pond. The famous duck pond. <laughs> and the regents sent us this marvelous letter saying, please, could we be discreet? which I thought was, even at the time, I thought was hilarious. I don't know how you can be discreet when you're sprinkling someone's ashes <laughs> in the bomb. So there we were with our little fake bronze plastic canister of ashes, sprinkling them in the duck pond. And then even more hilariously, because of all the bombings in London, all of the rubbish bins in London, as you know, from, from right. many visits here have very narrow apertures so that you can't put a bomb in a rubbish bin. And so we couldn't actually dispose of the container discreetly as the regents had requested us to do <laughs> because we couldn't get it into the rubbish bin. It wouldn't fit. And I remember sort of laughing and crying at the same time. And my mother said to me, what's wrong? And I said to her, well, you mean aside from the fact that my father's committed suicide and we've just sprinkled his ashes in the duck pond, what's wrong? <laughs> that kind of exemplifies the difference between my mother and, me and how we <laughs> grieve. <laughs> Can you go back to how this continues to reverberate in your life, but in terms of how it might have shaped how you approach your own life? It was a real wake-up call for me because I had had my own struggles with depression in my kind of mid-20s, I guess, mainly in, in early 30s. And I had experienced a lot of suicidal thoughts at different times. And this was a real wake-up call to me that I just had to stop kind of going down that path and find another way to deal with those bad feelings and really make sure that I never put anyone that I love through that pain. Because it's very easy when you feel depressed to see suicide as this kind of wonderful light at the end of the tunnel. It's kind of like the get out of jail free card if mm -hmm. that makes any sense. And I'm not trying to make light of it in any way. It is some kind of a release valve to have that thought. If anything gets worse, I can always commit suicide. And this experience with my dad, I really have to address my depressive issues in such a way that that doesn't become my future as well as his. And I think it also made me do a lot of thinking about the difference between nature and nurture. Because Interesting. I have never wanted to think, and I still don't think, that you have a genetic predisposition to be suicidal. I think potentially some people have a slightly higher genetic predisposition to be depressed, but I think how you cope with those feelings is has to be a more intellectual process. And it, I think it's slightly cheating to just sort of say, well, you know, I have a family history of depression and therefore I'm just going to give into it. Well, but you also have a family history from what you just revealed of suicide because yeah. both your father and his sister committed suicide. So did that ever also reinforce your determination to perhaps, if it is some weird genetic link, to 
cut it in its tracks, right? Stop it in its tracks with you that it would not continue on in the absolutely. daily history. You've hit the nail exactly on the head. It absolutely did. Because all I could think to myself was, we may all have this genetic predisposition to not cope well with depressive feelings, but I am not going to be like them. I am going to find a better, more constructive way of dealing with my feelings. And actually, one thing that I always think about is the guy in the UK who used to be the chief rabbi wrote a book about children of Holocaust survivors, of whom there are many living in the UK. And you know, he said that children who have had parents who were Holocaust survivors obviously had parents who were very stressed and you know, maybe hovered over them and sort of it had a really deleterious effect on them emotionally when they were growing up. But he said 27 is the age at which you basically have to stop blaming your parents for all the shit that's gone wrong in your life and you have to take responsibility for it and decide how you want your life to be as a proper adult. And I have always thought that was a really useful, you know, spur for me. This actually happened when I was 27 for unrelated reasons, obviously, but it was a point at which I realized that if I had to sort of steer the ship of my own emotional destiny, if I didn't want to end up in the same sort of circumstances as my dad and my aunt. It is a really good spur. I mean, I wish it hadn't had to happen, but I think in a way it was a kind of a real turning point for me that I thought I have to change the way I have been dealing with this and I have to stop being in my old patterns and really find some way to not be this person. Can you give us some examples of how this change manifested? Started going to group therapy instead of that's rough girl for a while (laughs) well it was i tell you what group therapy i mean it's no joke (laughs) it's no joke and i don't i'm not sure you could do it for many many years because it's it's not for the faint-hearted yes yes but exactly it's definitely not (laughs) faint-hearted but i think the thing that going to group therapy shows you is that a all the people in the group therapy sessions that you dislike the most are the people who push your buttons, probably because a lot of the things they do are similar to things that you do or similar to something that someone in your family does. So it's incredibly revealing and it teaches you an enormous amount in a very, very, very short space of time about what it is that does push your buttons. It also really reinforces the fact that no one is immune to feelings of fear and loss and loneliness and self-doubt And I think that I had always felt like that was just me. I mean, I think intellectually, I knew that wasn't the case, but emotionally, I think I had always felt that I was the only person in the world who experienced those feelings of self-doubt and lack of self-worth and fear of always being lonely. I found it really illuminating to sit in a room full of men and women and hear the men express just as much self-doubt and just as much loneliness and sadness and grief and all of those things as I feel. I also started looking at changing career. So not, not immediately, but I decided that I was going to stop working as a freelance journalist and be a lawyer. That took a bit of a leap of faith in myself, which maybe I would have had when my dad was still alive. It was kind of freeing in a way not to have him around because as I say, not only was he an extremely eccentric individual, (laughs) but he was kind of a hypercritical individual as well. And nothing you ever did was quite right or quite, or good enough. And I suppose in some ways when someone kills themselves, 
your respect for their view about something is diminished because you think, well, if they had the poor enough judgment to do that, then maybe their judgment about other things wasn't so terrific either. You stop having that little nagging voice in your head saying, you know, he wouldn't approve. I was able to have the confidence in myself to think I am going to change careers. I'm going to be really great at this and put myself through school and do the job that I'm doing now to this day. That was quite an interesting leap of faith. And also entering into starting a relationship. I mean, I started a relationship with my now ex, but that was not that long after my dad died. And I think I was in a very different, much more open frame of mind after this happened because I had sort of really worked on myself. I had a really interesting therapist after I finished the group therapy, which as we said, is not only not for the faint hearted, but one can't do it for too long because it's quite exhausting. But I had this very interesting therapist who I used and he was wonderful. And he had this very interesting way of doing therapy. He said, you have never had any parenting emotionally. And what you need to do is there are parts of yourself that are adults and they go out in the world and they work and they speak to people and have relationships and get a driving license and you know pay rent and all that sort of thing. And then you have this other part of yourself, which emotionally is still a child and has never been sort of raised to be an emotional adult. And he said, so what you need to do is the part of you that's an emotional adult needs to raise your internal child until it is an emotional adult and needs to be supportive of that emotional child in a way that a parent would be supportive of you. I actually found that way of conceptualizing the world incredibly useful. And it's a therapeutic technique that still stands in good stead to this day. Because if you ever have those days, and I think we all have them where everything is going wrong and you think I'm a complete failure and I haven't done this and I haven't done that, your internal parent can always say, yeah, but you got out of bed, you got dressed, you went to work, you did your job, you made lunch. Look on the bright side. You actually did achieve all these things and don't focus on the stuff that you didn't achieve today because you can achieve that stuff tomorrow. I think that was a huge step for me. Well, I want to go back to that. And I've just had a thought because I know that my parents were not very good in offering sort of that emotional support and parenting me through all the emotional stuff. Do you think that that might be generational? I do. I think it's partly generational and maybe it's partly cultural, maybe. I think with my dad, having grown up in Australia and been the child of my grandmother was from New Zealand, was Scottish from New Zealand, and my grandfather had been born in Egypt and raised in a very abusive household. We must just crack on with everything, which I think the Australian middle classes suffered from even more so than the British. I think my dad was raised in a sort of situation where feelings were just squelched completely. I think part of it from his perspective was cultural, but then of course that doesn't really explain my mother who was raised in a French Jewish family in New Orleans and a family that's very much kind of tells it how it is for the most part. But I do agree with you that it's partly generational in the sense that even now, I think it's a fairly new thing for people to be taught to think about how they are feeling and how other people are feeling. I think it's a different thing to say, you must always be considerate and polite to other people than to say, 
maybe think about how someone else is feeling about something. So I'm kind of super excited when I hear about kids, you know, having what I would think of as emotional education and actually dealing with their emotional intelligence as well as their intellectual intelligence. But I think that is a pretty new phenomenon. Yes, it is. That said, I mean, I'm sure I have, and you probably have too, lots of friends whose parents seemed to find that being a bit more nurturing thing quite easy and natural. I think for whatever reason, maybe cultural, maybe personality, maybe timing, it just didn't come naturally to my parents. And if I was the one who parented them and I used to say to them, please don't come to me with your marital problems because I am not your marriage counselor. I am your daughter. Neither of them ever listened to me. So as more time passes and you're able to put a little bit more distance from that day when you were 27, can you also see how it might've shaped? Because the one thing I know about you, Liz, is that you have a great capacity to access joy. Do you think that that experience taught you that? I think it definitely exacerbated that element of my personality because I think exactly as you say, I realized you have to steal your moments of joy when they're available to you. And in a way, if you spend your whole life looking for the big moments of joy, you maybe miss the small moments of joy. And life is a series of small moments of joy and maybe some small unhappinesses as well. It honed my ability to look for joy more often and in perhaps less grandiose forms. It's not necessarily about the big day or the big event. It's about little things that bring you joy. Like for example, spending time with you when we go away together, making Korean food together, which It's something that I relive in my head for days afterwards because it brings me so much joy. So I never asked you this. Were you incredibly angry with me when I had my breakdown? No, no, I was not angry with you. I was heartbroken that you felt so terrible. And I guess in a way, heartbroken that it wasn't something that we had been able to talk about beforehand, I just felt heartbroken that I hadn't been able to be of more help or be more supportive before it happened. But no, I wasn't angry with you. I felt very sad. I wanted to ask you that forever. But so, if anything ever happened to you, I would be devastated. I just wanted to ask you that because I wanted to ask you that for, I don't know, close to 10 years. <laughs> and. I'm glad you did. So we get to the last question. (laughs) All right. So this is the question where I get to ask something kind of out of left field. So the the listeners get a different perspective of you, a funnier perspective, more revealing in certain ways. If there is one song, and I know you're going to be able to answer this. If there is one song that either resonates with you or somehow feels as if it were the story of your life, what would that one song be? Oh, I know, right? (laughs) It's not me. I like it. One song that encapsulates my life. That's very hard. I mean, I tell you, when you first said the word song before you got to the rest of the question, the first thing that popped into my head was Save It for Later by the English Beat. Oh, I love that one. Which I absolutely love. 
and not because of the lyrics maybe, but because the song itself just fills me with great joy. I think we'll have to stick with that one because that popped into my head. Now Mm -hmm. it's kind of there. (laughs) For me, it reminds me of a specific moment in time. Yes. Yes. It reminds me of being at university and leaving home for the first time and being halfway around the world from my family, but having all kinds of new and exciting experiences. And for some reason, it makes me think of summer. I don't know about you. It's a song you would listen to when you're kind of outside at a picnic or it makes me think of sunshine. I love that. Well, thank you for doing this interview with me. I think that your story is going to touch a lot of people. And thank you for asking me to do this. It's been very revealing for me too. Oh, good. I'm glad. To think about all of those experiences that you go through a long time ago and kind of pick over them a bit now with the benefit of hindsight. Well, and I want to say this, that you're one of the people I think about who is able to access joy so quickly. And I'd always assume that it had to do with your dad's death, but I think that your ability to do that is a gift he left you unwittingly. I know it sounds very trite to say there's always a silver lining, but in fact, all experiences leave you with some kind of growth, even if there are painful experiences. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn, their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Yuliana Kim Grant. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Ryan Pruitt. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience. When I got tired of waiting, then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they gon' ask me why I do it. I'ma say this because we gon' be the best on earth, just like we be out in rust. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack, focused on the future, not that coulda, shoulda, woulda. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave your comments on the platform where you get your podcasts. If you think you have a Phoenix Tale, please send us a note on our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you just want to stay connected to Phoenix Tales, once again, you can go on to our Instagram and Facebook pages to get all the latest updates.